Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, no relationship to Kim Jong-un. I'm a left-wing pundit and a writer at The Atlantic and Vogue. And I'm Andy Levy, former Fox News and CNN HLN guy and current cable news conscientious objector. And I'm producer Jesse Cannon, and I'm here to make sure things don't go too far off the rails. We're here to have fun, smart conversations with the wisest and funniest people in science and media and politics that help make what's happening today clearer. Our world has been turned upside down, and on The New Abnormal, we'll talk about the people who got us into this mess and how we'll hopefully get ourselves out of it. What an interesting show we have today. Margaret Brennan, the moderator of Face the Nation on CBS News and the network's chief foreign affairs correspondent, is going to talk to us about what's going on with the Russia-Ukraine war. And then we'll talk to former presidential candidate Evan McMullen, who's currently running as an independent to unseat Senator Mike Lee of Utah. And he's going to tell us about the current state of affairs. But first, unfortunately, our beloved co-host Andy Levy was unable to join us today. But the good news is we're joined by Nation columnist and the author of the newsletter, The Time of Monsters, Jeet Here. Welcome back to the new abnormal Jeet Here. Always good to be here. So war with Canada. (laughs) Yes or no? Uh, It wouldn't be the first time. I mean, uh, there's a long history of this uh, in the War of 1812, which I think in the United States is presented as an American victory and in Canada as a Canadian victory. (laughs) But uh, you guys did pack and build, burn down what is not Toronto. And the (laughs) Canadians, uh, or more particularly, it was actually the British uh, with with indigenous soldiers burned down the White House. The only country to do so, so don't mess with us. I think later on, um, around the time of the Civil War, there were Finians in upstate New York who wanted to uh, avenge their Irish brothers. to, to strike at the British Empire, the closest part of which was Canada. And there were Finian raids into Canada as well. So, so, so it's not totally without precedent. Yeah, it seems like it could, in fact, I watch CPAC because I hate myself. And um, I actually wrote about it for Vogue, just to plug other things that I worked on that are not from the Daily Beast, because I know everyone loves that. But I watched it, and there was a point in which Nigel Farage tried to get the crowd to boo Justin Trudeau. I, I mean, it was... I didn't see that part. Did, it, did you have any success? Because I, I think it, it was another point where there was a sitting congresswoman who uh, basically suggesting they should liberate Canada. So yes, I, I there was. Yes. I mean, the Nigel Farage is like a fat fascinating character because he has no business being at CPAC. Also, nobody really kind of knows who he is. So that crowd doesn't necessarily know who Justin Trudeau is, though after this news cycle, I guess they do now. But it was sort of a, they kind of didn't know what to do. Well, yeah. Although I think it was actually Steve Bannon who brought uh, Nigel Farage into yes. the U.S. It was like in the, the 2016, I think, in uh, the Mississippi primary. That's <laughs> right, Bannon, the Mississippi primary. Uh, yes. Brexit supporting right-wing 
Britain would be, well, would get the good people of Mississippi to come out. I don't know what CPAC audience was like, but certainly the recent truckers convoy, I mean, it had a lot of actual American support that we have the breakdown of the sort of social media crowdfunding campaign. And there were tens of thousands of people that contributed millions of dollars. And most of the money came from Canada, but most of the donors were from the United States, the 50% from the United States. So, yeah. And one would think like, well, why are Americans so concerned about Canadian vaccination mandates? A lot of ways that the, the sort of political right has been transnational for a while. Yes. I mean, it's ironic that they're the ones that claim about globalist and globalization, but their total product of it, we're thinking through why or how. And part of it is these kind of like networks of, you know, crowdfunding, social media, and then the sort of that they're sort of this appetite for endless outrage and indignation. Right. So like if there's not enough news to make you mad in America, well, then you have to read about Merkel letting in Syrian refugees or you have right. to read about something that Justin Trudeau did. It does seem like there is a kind of segment of the right that is very, very online. But this is like, these are people who are so online that they're following news from Finland, New Zealand. and Yeah. Well, no, they were enraged at the Australian vaccine mandates when Australia is a gazillion miles away. I'm curious to know, though, you know, as you're watching these world events unfold, all of America, or at least not all of America, but certainly I have been, you know, watching BBC International and and listening to these people and they're brave. You know, there's been a lot of talk from Zelensky, who is my age and a Jewish comedian, so I feel very connected to him. My generation was also Jesse's generation. We've had a tough time of it. We've never really had our moment. So this may be as close as we ever get to our moment. That's interesting. I mean, like, I think the one proviso to say is that's true more in the United States than uh, like anywhere else. That like if you actually look around the world, in most uh, democracies, there's been sort of cohort replacement. And yeah. so like, South Korea, New Zealand, Finland, you're seeing politicians in their 30s. Yeah, we're fucked. They just skipped right over us. <laughs> Whereas like, you know, like in the United States, I mean, like, yeah, they will, you know, you're going to have like these forever drugs that will keep yeah, yeah. 90 year olds alive. And, yeah, you know, no, I mean, we have a 10,000-year-old president on the right, 10,000-year-old president on the left, and then, uh, you know, everywhere else, we're completely fucked. So this is our man, so we really need to keep him alive. But he gave this very good speech today, and he talked about how Ukraine is the step towards Russia completely. You know, they're just taking them because they're in the way of Russia trying to completely steamroller the world. You are in Canada— must be a little scary being next to America. <laughs> I, I am actually very worried uh, about what's happening with Russia and Ukraine, although not so much for Russia being able to invade other countries. I mean, I think they're having enough trouble in Ukraine itself. Yeah. It's important yeah. to understand that Russia is a very weak country. Um, I mean, their economy is actually smaller than Canada's economy. And nobody's afraid that Canada's going to take over the world. Uh, Uh, They're a small country with a lot of nuclear weapons and a relatively largish military. So they can invade neighboring countries or get only enough to get in quagmire. What's dangerous is that Putin has like very explicitly raised the prospect of nuclear weapons. I mean, he's clearly letting people know that things don't get his way. You know, he's a guy with nukes on the reverse side, I mean, that both limits what the NATO and um, other people might want to help uh, Ukraine can do and also has to make us very careful about that trigger. I mean, there's all sorts of talks about no-fly zones. I think the Biden White House has very wisely said uh, that's not really an option. Um, That's one of the things that could lead to a nuclear war. 
I think people are too blasé and complacent about them. It's always a problem that these weapons exist and they're so dangerous. But this is really the first time since the 1980s that, you know, like it's a really live prospect in terms of the you know Soviet Union and the United States. You get these like kind of do your own research guys. Uh, <laughs> I know exactly. I knew where this was going. I'm so happy you brought this up, Jeet. A new type of guy. Yeah. A new type of, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so they've already, you know, having done their own research using uh, horse medicine for COVID, now they're buying it to nuclear weapons. And you see these do your own research guys saying, well, would nuclear war really be so terrible? I thought one person guy saying, uh, it's really a matter of attitude. Yeah. Uh, and like, I'm sorry, man, but like radiation does not care about your attitude. Fallout doesn't care about your attitude. You know, Noah Smith, who's a columnist at Bloomberg, mm-hmm. you know, famously tweets under, you know, the handle No Opinion. You know, he was saying, well, you know, I've looked at the recent papers on nuclear winter and it's not as bad as people think and yeah, this is just, okay there's a scholarly dispute would some of the nuclear winter effect be absorbed by the oceans and by the mountains yeah and you know what well, well, there's different models i just have to say like this is a dispute one wants to see stay theoretical and stay unresolved yeah like, like the only way you can actually find out which model is true is to have a uh, nuclear war and you know then we'll find out if nuclear winter will only kill a billion people or will actually make the earth uninhabitable for humanity. I don't care either way. Like, I, I think we should avoid that prospect. It is. It's totally fascinating because I think if you have to say nuclear war is bad, but... <laughs> That's a sentence. Once you say that, you've lost. In another way to frame it, though, to return to Putin is, I mean, I think that we want to avoid bringing up this as a prospect because that just reinforces his paranoia and also his swagger and threats. And really returning to realms where the West does have the upper hand, like economics. I think there have been like a lot of sanctions now. I'm hoping that we're wishing that they're a little bit more targeted. That will come. But it's actually like much ahead of what one was seeing in the first day or two where people were kind of stunned in a state of shock. And there were a lot of people saying, you know, they wanted carve outs. You know, the British were saying, well, we'll have sanctions, but we want to have Russian money coming into the banks right. in London. And the Italians, my favorite, were saying like, sure, sanctions, but, you know, luxury goods. Right. Like Gucci's kind of our biggest ex- Export, right. In a sense, like I feel like Putin has already lost, although there could be some sort of end game where he absorbs, you know, a large part of Ukraine or maybe the whole of it. But I mean, the whole goal, if it's the goal was to restart the Russian Empire, what you're basically now seeing is like a much more unified NATO. You're seeing Germany rearm. France is now announcing further arms spending. Finland and uh, Sweden are, you know, like talking about joining NATO. If there's no uh, off ramp if there's no negotiated settlement. What Putin will face is a world that is very hostile to him. Yeah. And outside of Europe, I mean, if you look at the UN vote, the vast majority of countries voted uh, to condemn. There were a few people that were voted to abstain, which is interesting. And I sort of read them as the countries that want to... North Korea. He voted to support Russia, shockingly. Yeah. I, I will, If I were you, I would, you know, maybe unfriend him. Don't eat any snacks he brings you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, it's basically yeah, yeah, North Korea, Belarus, a few, very few countries. Syria. Um, uh, I think uh, yeah, Etria was maybe the only one in Africa. Anyway, right. very, very few countries supported him. A few abstained, but the vast majority went against it. And even the abstainers. I mean, I, I read China's position from their various statements and from the abstaining is that they don't approve of the takeover. They do want some sort of settlement or negotiations, and they're trying to they're angling, I think, to try to be the mediator in this. Yeah. So I just think like like where Putin is diplomatically 
is not, and then just like economically, like, you know, once the sanctions start to bite and the fact that he's receiving a lot of opposition in his own country, you know, like there've been a lot of protests. Protesting in Russia is a much it's more serious pretty thing. pretty high stakes gamble. It's a high stakes gamble. Yeah. And there've been like six or 7,000 people arrested. Like those are people yeah. who are really putting their lives on the line. But, and, and it shows us the severity that he's doing to take them down. He's separating kids from their fam- parents if the parents yeah. protest. But also seeing like uh, business leaders protesting, and oligarchs. The oligarchs and the oligarchs yeah. you know like and one reads the sort of political situation there's some members of the Duma uh, who had actually voted for the war are now saying well we voted to protect the little statelets not to invade Ukraine uh, so I just think politically the situation is not great for Putin I mean it's not I think it'd be very hard to depose of him but i think that there's unhappiness coalescing he never mobilized the population for this like usually people remember the iraq war like months and months of propaganda to get, get people worked up there was really none of that and i think that maybe the majority of russians is kind of like passive going along with it like just not to rock the boat but there's no like you're not seeing counter protests you're not seeing like people out on the street saying yeah let's invade uh, ukraine I, I think he miscalculated and i think you know our best hope is that that sort of mobilized population population in Ukraine that's making its unhappiness known can somehow find some sort of political form. And that makes Putin do a walk back. Now, having said that, I mean, I don't want to get into like a sort of, you know, psychological reading, but he's, he's changed a little bit. He used to be very calculated right. and very careful about his aggressions. I mean, there was aggression, yeah. but like of a limited nature. What he's doing now and the way he's behaving is not, it's, it's very terrifying. Let's talk about that because Macron has kind of been on the forefront of talking to Putin, he went to Putin and tried to sort of convince him not to invade Ukraine. And he's been sort of the loudest European leader, don't you think? Yeah, I yeah, don't know. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And also trying to play, I think, the same role as China, like if there is negotiations to be the kind of mediator. He's the one who's keeping the lines of communication open. But in this case, it was actually like Putin who called Macron. He he like called him up and talked to him for like an hour and a half. And then it was like, you know, just like everything's going according to plan, which I mean, like, I think you don't necessarily say that if everything is going according to plan. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty I mean, nice. You could read that. You could say you could. It could be that he's sincere. Or it could be that he's trying to cheer himself up. Also, it's just, you know, he's going to, Macron came out of this very pessimistic, saying that, you know, things are going to get worse and that Putin is committed to, like, taking over all of Ukraine. The sort of unhingedness of the phone call, but the fact that he's trying to justify himself to the president of France, there's at least a kernel of a way that maybe this guy can be reached. It seems to me like what I was surprised by was Macron, he's the leader who seems the most worried and he's the one who spent the most time with him. Yes, yes, yes. No, I, I think that's right. That's right. Yeah. The uh, conversation was, is very disturbing, you know, based on Macron's own reports. So it does seem like Putin is kind of digging in his heels. I think the best that we can hope for is that with the sanctions biting more of the uh, Russian population will come out and opposing this. It's not like they they were mobilized to support it. So I'm thinking a population that was not on board already is already passive and then is going to have to make sacrifices. I don't know. I, I, I feel like it's a very, um, that might be, uh, th- that's the only sort of path I'm seeing towards some sort of settlement. And if there's not a settlement, it's going to be very incredibly horrible for the people of Ukraine. Yeah. Because the, the Russians will, Putin will unleash, you know, the forces. And while the Russian militaries had trouble and setbacks and bogged down, I mean, they do have the superior forces. And as we've seen in, you know, wars in Chechnya and elsewhere, 
they're willing to be very brutal. And yeah. if there's this path of, if it's impossible to get Putin to, you know, go back to negotiations, it's going to be a very long and nasty war, very tragic for the people of Ukraine, but also a war that will completely isolate Russia and make it like a yeah. kind of pariah nation. They can't sell iPhones. There's no Apple Pay. I mean, it's really, I think it's important for all of us to remember that the, a lot of the people in Russia are not there by choice choice anymore, right? They're ruled by a pretty scary dictator and they don't have a lot of freedoms. Mm -hmm. So I think always so important with situations like this to remember the humanity of the people. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. And that there are many of them who are like quite bravely standing up for this. The worst case scenario is a kind of a huge tragedy for Ukraine and also for the people of Russia with all sorts of possibilities, the nastiest sort of weapons being used. I spent a little bit of time talking to Matt Duss, who's the foreign policy advisor for Bernie Sanders. And uh, he had a lot of thoughts, um, uh, the priority of we're giving to refugees has to uh, be there. There's going to there's already a million refugees. There's potentially many, many more. Uh, you know the sanctions that uh, that are there. We have to have them, and we also have to make sure that they're targeted. That they really are uh, affecting the people who can like are the most responsible and can push Putin. I mean, there's a lot of things that can be done. You know, when I talked to Matt Dust, the other point he made was that we have to avoid the kind of dumb rhetoric that we're seeing. Like Sean Hannity was saying, well, right. why doesn't NATO? just like bomb and then, but don't take responsibility and then Putin won't know who did it, right? So <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So some guy out of the blue just came into a Ukraine airspace and bombed the convoy. Who could that be? It's just like, you know, and, and then no-fly zone, all the talk about kind of military tactics that A, won't help Ukraine and B, will unleash untold horrors on the world. I will end with this, with maybe just saying, I'm really glad Joe Biden is in the White House. And they've been very good about avoiding the the worst sort of militaristic rhetoric and being yeah. you know, having their eyes on the prize. And have really, really rallied the Europeans in a way. Yeah. Uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, like, it's a grim situation. I'm grateful that I think the United States and other you know, Western governments, I think, are doing the best they can. Yeah, I think that's right. Thank you so much for joining us, Jeet. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When picking a commerce platform for your business, you have two choices. Or. I prefer. Don't you? 
That's the sound you'll hear when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell, online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Shopify is the best all-in-one commerce platform capable of handling your business's complexity no matter how big you grow. Step up to Shopify and harness the best converting checkout and the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and so much more. You're probably thinking, sure, but migrating is going to be a headache. Shopify's app store has the migration apps you need to migrate your products, orders, customers, and more from every major e-commerce platform to Shopify. If you're anything like me, you're one of those don't put me in a box people. Everyone who knows me knows. I'm a don't put me in a box person. And thankfully, Shopify never will, because with Shopify, control of your brand and business is always in your hands, from your storefront look to your back office operations. I hate when checking out from an online store and then having to pull out my credit card and type in all those numbers. A Shopify store remembers my shipping address and payment information. So if I'm on the couch and my wallet is on the kitchen counter... I don't even have to get up. Stop leaving sales on the table. Switch your business to Shopify and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their business. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. Shopify.com slash abnormal. Margaret Brennan is the moderator of Face the Nation on CBS News and the network's chief foreign affairs correspondent. Welcome to the new abnormal, Margaret Brennan. (laughs) I'm definitely living the abnormal. It's become my normal, so thank you. (laughs) We're very excited to have you. I was hoping we could just talk about what's going on in Ukraine. It's very hard to sort of process all this information. Can you kind of give us a sort of a little explainer? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty fast moving on the ground right now in Ukraine, it's pretty terrifying if you are a Ukrainian because you have an incredibly powerful military descending upon your country with no promise from any Western country that they will come to your defense, but that they will help your military defend you. But the force is overwhelming. This morning, for example, one of the most chilling things I heard was from the United States ambassador to the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. He gave a speech saying, that the United States is credible information that Russian forces are creating lists of Ukrainians to be killed or sent to camps following the military occupation. So the United States has intelligence indicating this, that they are trying to make public and share with other countries to try to investigate human rights abuses that haven't yet taken place, but the world expects them to. It is pretty terrifying if you are in Ukraine. A million Ukrainians to date have fled the country into surrounding ones, into the NATO member states. That is the fastest evacuation thus far of a flow of refugees in a century where we have seen some massive refugee exoduses from war zones. And all of this is happening and destabilizing potentially Europe. And this is going to have massive implications for the global economy and the global balance of power, which is why it matters to the rest of the world outside of Ukraine. The United States, as you know, is not sending combat troops. President 
Biden has made that clear. Can you explain to our listeners, this seems like a very different refugee crisis than what we've seen previously. Like Poland is opening its borders to these refugees. Can you explain a little bit how this is different than other refugee crises we've seen? Well, this is controversial because it gets at how the European countries surrounding Ukraine are opening their borders to take in refugees from the war zone from Ukraine at a time when they have tried to close their borders to refugees from active war zones in Syria or really destabilized countries like Afghanistan and some countries in Africa. In fact, in Poland's north, there is a wall being built to keep out those refugees. Refugees have been weaponized by governments, particularly in Belarus. And so those coming from war zones, from Muslim-majority countries, those who are brown or black, have had a different experience than those being welcomed from Ukraine, who are largely Christian, some Jewish, but largely Christian white Europeans. There have been charges that this is based in racism. The European governments, Poland, for example, would argue, no, it's because they are our European neighbors. They're not coming from zones where terrorism, for example, is the threat. You know, that rings hollow for Syrian refugees, for example, in in 2015 and to now who were seen and treated as a threat rather than welcomed as just fellow humans. So it's a complex thing. And for Ukrainians, it's also frustrating. You know, some of my colleagues on the ground in Poland who've talked to European refugees, to Ukrainians, they say, you know, the Europeans are not coming to help us. Ukraine and the government that came to power after 2014 and their revolution of dignity, as they call it, they were vying to join the European Union and be welcomed as full members of that European community. They've been vying to join and be welcomed into NATO, and those doors have been not opened fully to them. It's interesting to hear some of the European governments say they welcome fellow Europeans as refugees, but haven't fully allowed them to be members of a club that they would have to actively defend with military force. I know there were a lot of African students who were having trouble getting to the border or through the border? Is that still happening? You know, I'd have to defer to those on the ground. I know some of our reporters have said they have seen a difference in those who were prioritized in lines, for example, to get out. There have been charges of racism there, but it's not clear to me. I, I, I know the reports you're talking about. I've seen them. Yeah. It's such an interesting time in American life. You know, I come from a family. My great great grandparents were all in Ukraine and left when they were being murdered by the Cossacks. So I I didn't realize there were so many Jews still in Ukraine. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, the president of Ukraine right. is Jewish. The defense minister is Jewish. Yes, I think that resonated for people outside of Ukraine when they heard the phrasing that Vladimir Putin used when he said he was justifying this military aggression with the claim he was denazifying Ukraine. So it, it's interesting that that resonated for people. It is also interesting that it hits a certain chord with people where they feel a little guilty, perhaps, or you hear what President Zelensky has said, and, and he is saying it intentionally when he says to the European governments, you all like every year to say never again. You all say that this is something you would never allow to happen again on the continent of Europe. And he's saying it for a reason, because he is calling upon the institutions that were set up. I mean, the entire global order that you hear President Biden talk about as a reason to be invested in this conflict, that it's a defense of the global order. He's talking about NATO, but he's also talking about all the institutions that were set up. The United Nations, the World
World Bank, the IMF, all these things were created after World War II to prevent World War I and World War II from, from ever replicating into World War III. And that's the irony of it all. There's amazing diplomatic work being done to keep allies in line, to move in lockstep. But I'm keenly aware that doesn't mean a whole lot for someone in a bomb shelter right now. Yeah. It's interesting to me because we saw in 2015, the right wing has been very, very anti-NATO, shockingly anti-NATO in my mind. And now we're really seeing why we have NATO. Do you think that there will be a sort of about face in the right wing media? Well, you know, it's interesting because so much of the problems with these institutions, and let's be honest here, they are a bit rusty and rickety and they have needed refurbishment. In fact, President Obama had some of the very same criticism President Trump's administration put out there in terms of NATO and the need to renew and revitalize the alliance, that it was sort of taken for granted and that the U.S. was relied upon to often corral projects. He put it in far more diplomatic terms than President Trump, who was, you know, sort of black and white, like we may pull out, right? But the overall point is that these are a bit rickety and they do need revitalization. The irony of it all is you're only seeing that happen in a time of absolute crisis. And it is interesting and ironic because you have the United States government out there declassifying intelligence for weeks and months saying to European powers, this is going to happen. This is what Vladimir Putin is is lining himself up to do. And I remember talking to European diplomats, you know, from Germany, from the United Kingdom, from France, from from so many allies, and even those who aren't NATO countries who said, we see the same intelligence, we don't doubt your intelligence, but we just doubt that Vladimir Putin would ever go ahead and do it. And it took Vladimir Putin going ahead and doing it to see this incredible revitalization of the alliance. President Biden does deserve credit for the leadership in trying to keep the allies in lockstep with the United States, not moving independently, for example. But let's be clear here. It was Vladimir Putin who unified NATO because he terrified Germany. He terrified the surrounding countries by bombing a European capital. I mean, it definitely seems like we've seen a real global political shift. And I've been interested, how much credit do you think that Biden can take for the kind of rallying of NATO? Feels like the international community has been completely in lockstep, with the exception of North Korea. President Biden and his administration have spent a lot of time on diplomacy and trying to keep the alliance in lockstep because that's how they want to create this sort of bright line, this wall and show of force that NATO and the allies can't be divided by Putin, which ultimately would be his dream, right? So keeping the alliance together is something that the diplomats have have put in a lot of elbow grease on. I am just keenly aware that, you know, I can talk at length about the artistry of the diplomacy, but that means nothing for someone in a bomb shelter, for the woman giving birth in a subway right now. And that is always the tough thing when you talk about diplomacy that is not backed up by the credible use of force. And it reminds me of what it was like covering Syria. Let's go into that more. First, I want to ask you, it seems like there's a pretty big line in the sand here about what that would mean. I mean, I feel like the American media is sort of grappling with the concept that we're watching something terrible, but if we get involved, that could open the door to things that are much, much worse. Right. I mean, you 
hear that from from officials of the Pentagon, from the State Department, from elsewhere, that Vladimir Putin, and he knows this well, that this is like a dance he's doing with Europe, but it's also one he's doing with the United States, though it's 5,000 miles away. He is using the fact that he has 4,500 nuclear warheads, the largest nuclear force uh, in his world, as just a threat. And that is um, a useful one, and it's one that is keeping the United States from even considering intervention in Ukraine at this point. The president has made that clear. I mean, he led the State of the Union talking about this and made the point that the United States is not going to send combat troops. He's not going to risk going head-to-head between two nuclear powers. He's drawn a very bright line to say, but if you go farther towards the West, if you touch one of the countries that we are treaty allies with, Poland, Romania, Slovakia, you know, any of the 30 NATO members, that then that would mean force. That's where the forces that the United States is sending are going to shore up that wall. But the Ukrainian president has said, hey, guys, we're not a buffer zone. We're people. Right, right. No, I mean, (laughs) he's been interesting because his speeches, and I've watched a bunch of his speeches with, with, you know, with translation, and he's such a gifted orator. Russia has an incredible propaganda machine. I mean, we were here for the 2016 elections, right? We've seen it. He's broken through some of that, which has been kind of amazing. It is, and in a way that, I mean, I covered 2014 when Russia first invaded Ukraine under the Obama administration. I spent a lot of time doing this, like chasing around John Kerry, who was Secretary of State at the time when he was going to meet with Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister in different capitals, trying to negotiate with him to stop. At the same time, there was the backdrop of the conflict in Syria, where Vladimir Putin's government was backing a war criminal using chemical weapons against his own people. And the United States did not intervene with force. The message has been sent for years now that the United States, whether it was under President Obama, President Trump or President Biden doesn't want to once again deploy U.S. combat troops into a war zone. And that's fine. That is the state of the American mentality right now. But I'm also mindful that the American people do react to what you're saying there, to those calls to that sort of value system to say they don't like seeing a bully. And for 20 years, they've been hearing Vladimir Putin's a bully. And this time they are seeing just egregious examples of, um, you know, going into Ukraine. It wasn't an aerial campaign in 2014. It was this insidious seizure of Crimea and parts of the east of Ukraine that probably just didn't resonate with people the way this really muscular invasion does. Americans, when you poll them, are never pro-foreign intervention. They just aren't. They don't like seeing this. They don't like hearing echoes of 1945. And they don't like hearing that there are lists of Ukrainians to be sent to camps. That means something that gets at the core of people. And I just wonder where this goes next. Yeah, it's so interesting to me as someone who has sort of watched this during the Trump administration, certainly in a place where Americans were completely in both parties against foreign intervention. And now we see this carnage and it's very hard to sit on our hands. I mean, you can wind back the clock of all the human rights abuses that Vladimir Putin has been directly involved in. And the American people didn't want to get involved in Syria. The American president, President Obama, didn't want to get involved in Syria. There were foreign governments like in France who, and I hear this from French diplomats, that they were willing and ready to go. United Kingdom was not to intervene back then. But seeing those pictures of women and babies gassed to death by their own government did resonate with the American people, but they stopped short of it, of an intervention. And I wonder now, because I asked the UN ambassador, the US ambassador to the UN, I should say, last Sunday on Face the Nation, about the reports of potential chemical and biological weapons being used in Ukraine. 
and what would happen. And she said, nothing's off the table with this guy. When the United States is looking at scenarios of those kind of weapons, the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States said that vacuum bombs were being used. The Pentagon says they still can't confirm they were used, but they can confirm the equipment's been moved into Ukraine. So what happens next? Is there a scenario like that where there's such massive, egregious human rights abuses, violations of the Geneva Convention that change thinking to create, for example, a humanitarian corridor? It's something I talked to H.R. McMaster, the retired general who was on uh, our program the other night about, um, you know, wh- what's next there? It seems like, and again, I think that it's very hard to trust the reporting here, but it seems like some of these oligarchs are not pleased with Vladimir Putin. You have reports now of, you know, the French government seizing yachts and, you know, certainly the Justice Department says they're going to do things like that, go after the mistresses, the children, the the things that oligarchs get to do and stash around the world. Look, the bet is that ultimately that will put pressure on Vladimir Putin. There's a real question mark over that because it's at what point does enough pressure get exerted on Vladimir Putin who doesn't seem to be pressured or bullied by anyone. I also just have to remind myself to put that in practical terms. Look, I am fascinated by the fact that corporate America is also sort of leading its own pressure campaign. Gas companies. Yes. You know, financial firms and the like, Visa, MasterCard, American Express talking about ending some business enterprises, too. That's fascinating to me. But again, it comes back to what's happening on the ground. When does any of this practically make a difference to stop the Russian military in its track? I have not heard anyone put a date on the calendar for that. And until we see that, It's worth watching and it is an amazing thing, but it doesn't stop and help people on the ground who are dying now. And that's my question is, when does this practically make a difference with the ability of the Russian military to continue carrying out a campaign? I want to find out the answer to that. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much, Margaret Brennan. I hope you'll come back. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is I, I can't believe the time just flew by. Thank you. Evan McMullen is a former 2016 presidential candidate and is currently running as an independent to unseat Senator Mike Lee of Utah. Welcome to the new abnormal, Evan McMullen. Hi, Molly. Great to be with you. I wanted to talk to you for any number of reasons. The first was that you did a really good ad. You are running against Mike Lee in the great state of Utah. Can you talk to us about this ad that you did? Absolutely. I mean, in general, I'll just say, look, we've got a far-right senator out here in, Mark, in, in Mike Lee who tried to overturn our last election, you know, every so often tries to shut down the government, voted against Putin sanctions, uh, voted against helping the Ukrainians. I mean, he's just really somebody who's been a destructive force in American politics since he was elected. And he's been in the Senate now for about 12 years, and it's it's time to call him home. Only 34% of Utah support him. And so we've got a great opportunity out here to do it, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that. This whole... Uh, Russia-Ukraine situation has, I think, made clear the fight that the world is is having now between democracy and authoritarianism. And here in Utah, we've got somebody who has stood on the side of Putin and on the side of efforts to overturn our own democracy. And because of that, they're unpopular and we have an opportunity to replace him. And so we did an ad that highlighted the fact that Mike Lee had been one of only two senators to vote against Russia sanctions after 2016. He and Rand Paul were the only two senators to vote against those sanctions. He 
then traveled to Moscow a year later, met with the Kremlin and talked about lifting sanctions. Uh, he defended the illicit withholding of military aid to Ukrainians as they were already fighting off Russians in 2019. And more recently, he's argued against basic internal NATO uh, deployments that are intended to secure our allies in, in Europe. And, you know, these aren't NATO deployments into Ukraine, they're NATO deployments uh, around uh, Europe to ensure that that our allies are protected. So we did an ad on that, confronting him on that issue and offering a better way forward. And and uh, that's what we're doing with the campaign in general. So he was on that July 4th trip to Russia. It wasn't a July 4th trip, actually. It was it was a different trip. He and a handful of other senators wanted to travel to Russia in 2018. I believe that's when it was. Interestingly, Moscow denied all of the other senators' visas, but gave a visa to Mike Lee. And I think it probably had something to do with the fact that he had been one of these two senators who voted against sanctions. And of course, you know, that was, uh, you know, Mike Lee said he was going to Russia to talk about religious liberty, uh, but later the Russians sort of blew that out of the water by <laughs> exposing the fact that they had talked about lifting sanctions and Mike Lee didn't deny it. So, so it was a different trip, but obviously very interesting that the Russians denied all the other senators. They were quite upset about it. But for Mike Lee, they rolled out the red carpet. What do you think is going on there? Well, I think what happened is that Mike Lee, keep in mind, he campaigned strenuously against Donald Trump on the floor of the Republican National Convention in 2016. He called for Trump to get out of the race after Access Hollywood. And on election day, he announced that he had voted for me and he had been sort of quietly, privately uh, supporting uh, never Trump efforts before that, but then publicly said so on election day. But after that, he changed. There was a great change in, in Mike Lee. I mean, he was always from the far right, I think, but he had opposed Trump, I think because he thought Trump would lose and it was safe to do so. But once he won, most people understand that Mike Lee saw in that an opportunity and that was to become a Supreme Court justice. And that's what Mike Wait, Lee- Wait, what? Yes. I didn't- <laughs> That's crazy. Continue That's what, on. Sorry. What, what Mike Lee wants most is to become or has wanted most is to become a Supreme Court justice. And so when Donald Trump was elected, Mike Lee saw opportunity there that you know, he could be potentially nominated to the Supreme Court. And I think that's why he did such an about face. And so he started spending more time with Trump and Javanka and became very proud of that fact and talked about it, and bragged about it in Washington. You, you know, you Utahns hear stories of, of this sort of thing from Washington about Mike Lee. Um, but over time, he, he became one of Trump's closest allies. He became, in 2020, he was his co-chair, uh, the co-chair of his re-election committee here in Utah. Uh, ultimately, he helped advise Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election. Um, he laid in the race in 2020. He was campaigning with Trump in Arizona to an audience of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. And he compared Donald Trump to Captain Moroni, who is this revered, righteous military leader from the Book of Mormon that really all members of the church respect. And that's a, a, an esoteric issue maybe for, for the rest of the country, but but not not in Utah and not not for members of the church. And so that still remains one of the biggest issues that he faces is just that that 
about face, that abandonment of our principles and our values uh, in in service of his own self-interest. And obviously it hasn't worked out too well for him. He's very unpopular out here. But I think that's what drove his change and and his willingness to appease and cater to Putin and the far right. And and by appeasing Putin, he was catering to the far right. And, and that was, I think, what he thought he needed to do in order to pursue his own political ambitions. So he he's not a Mormon. He is. So, but he just doesn't. I mean, I'm just sort of shocked. Well, he in fact he he is a member of the church, and he's actually the son of a, a very prominent member, Rex Lee, who is the former Solicitor General of of the country, very very well respected and regarded even today. But Mike Lee has offered a very different kind of of service, uh, one that I think has become quite dishonorable, and a lot of people recognize that departure from from his his father's service. You and I are both in the CIA. Um, <laughs> and no, I'm just kidding. But you were you've done a lot of work in the CIA and also in different conflict zones. We're watching what's unfolding right now. What is your read on what you're watching and ha- is it very horrible to watch it and to feel like you know what's happening and not be able to help. Yeah, well, it's 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 very difficult, frankly, to see something like that happening and not to be able to help there on the ground. I mean, that that is really, really difficult. But I, I know that fighting the political fight here that we have for our values, for American democracy, is a part of a broader fight between the rise of authoritarianism and aggressive dictators around the world and the rise of, of an anti-democracy movement here in the United States. And what we hope for, which is a strange strengthened democracy in a healthier country. And so, you know, I'm fighting in that way still, and it's an important fight, especially with Mike Lee as my opponent. But yes, it's hard not to be able to. I mean, I'm, I'm hands-on. I like to be where the fight is, and it's tough not to be able to help there directly. But I know we have good people in the, the U.S. government who are working hard on that front, and thankfully our allies are joining, have joined, and the coalition against Russia's hostilities is growing far faster and more broadly than I ever imagined, frankly. I think it's a great success and bodes well for the future of American leadership. It's going to be awful for Ukrainians for for some time, I'm sad to say. And uh, I I hope that the international community will be strong enough to sustain its pressure on Putin and the whole Russian country to withdraw from Ukraine so that we can um, get back to peacetime or something less than all-out war as soon as possible. I mean, it just seems like we're watching this terrible humanitarian crisis and there's nothing we can do. Well, I think there are things we can do. The New York Times and some other publications have released a small list of NGOs that are doing great work and and are trustworthy in Ukraine, where if you want to support their humanitarian efforts, you can. Otherwise, I think what people should do is reach out to your members of Congress, Republicans and, and Democrats. And even if you think your member, your senator, your, your senators or your your representative is already good on this issue, still reach out to them because they need to know that this is important to you. I mean, there, there are so many other things, so many other important things to focus on. If this is a priority to you, call and let them know that it is. Write them, call them, meet with them, let them know that it's a priority that they stand with the rest of the international community uh, in support of Ukrainians' fight for freedom and against Putin and other such dictators who seek to deprive free people of, of their basic rights 
around the world. I think that's 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 critical, and and that political activity it, it can have a tremendous impact. It can mean the difference between Ukrainian grandmother fighting Russian soldiers in her village uh, with with what she needs to be effective, and her losing her life. And so so do that. Reach out to them. Let them know that that it's important that that the U.S. stand with the Ukrainians uh, in the right way. I want you to talk to us about what the options are, because it seems to me like there aren't a lot of options on the table. Well, there, there aren't a lot of great options, but that's often the case with war. I mean, war is uh, the result of everything else failing. And so it's not a surprise that the options within war are not great. If the options were great, uh, right. then we, we wouldn't have the war. Um, yeah. So so we, we've, we've got a situation here where, you know, the, the U.S., and I, I agree, I don't want to see U.S. troops in Ukraine, but at the same time, I want to do everything we can to support the Ukrainians. I don't want this to escalate out of control and become a broader war in Europe or, or globally, certainly. And so we have to be very careful about what we do. You know, there's been some discussion of a potential no-fly zone that America and its NATO allies and others would enforce. You know, I'm, I'm nervous about that, frankly. I, right. you know, a, a no-fly zone requires you to shoot the, the enemy's aircraft out of the sky. And, right. and that can be, that can cause escalation that we may not be able to control. So I'm nervous about that. But at the same time, we, in my view, we can't just let the Russians drop area munitions and, you know, cluster bombs and other other weapons uh, designed to at least the, and, and use the way they are to, to kill uh, civilians in mass. We just cannot allow that. So what do we do? Yeah. Well, what we do is we make sure Ukrainians have the weapons they need to knock those aircraft out of the sky and to protect their airspace and to otherwise persuade the Russians that that the fight is is not worth the effort. And, you know, there are things we can do from the outside. Yes, sanctions, breaking apart, taking away uh, all of Russian oligarchs' uh, assets. What that will do yeah. is fracture yeah. Putin's support within the regime. You know, all of these things, frankly, we're now doing a lot of these things. I wish we would have done them a long time ago. I've been talking about this stuff for years, you know, certainly with the oligarchs. But, but now I think is a a, a clarifying moment for the world. And what I'm describing is happening and it, it's what I think should happen, but it's not going to end anything very quickly. Unfortunately, right. this is going to go on for a while. Are there people working behind the scenes in ways we don't know? I am not a part of that world now, so I can't say right. authoritatively, but I but right. I can speculate. <laughs> and yes, well, that's what I was. Yes, you and and I would speculate that absolutely. Uh, I would imagine that there are CIA operatives and and other special U.S. operators helping the Ukrainians, making sure that we get weapons to them that they need, making sure they know how to use them effectively. I would imagine that we're providing intelligence, detailed intelligence on Russian troop movements and uh, intentions. And I would imagine we're certainly doing all of that. I don't know authoritatively. I don't know, period. Right, right. You're speaking theoretically from your own experience in previous things. In this kind of ser situation, that's exactly what, what we're very likely to be doing. Do you see a world, you've been in countries that have had regime change, do you see a world where the people are able to take their country back from Vladimir Putin? Yeah, I, 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 I'm 
I'm bullish on on Ukraine and on the the prospects for freedom in Ukraine, frankly. I, but I think it's going to take a long time, and it's the de- destruction is going to be terrible. There's going to yeah. be a tremendous loss of life. But the Russians are demoralized. They're not well supplied. They're not well trained. They don't have a good cause to fight for. And the Ukrainians are fighting for their freedom. And frankly, this isn't new to them. They they've been fighting for their freedom really since their independence. And and they've got a lot of powerful friends. And, and I think what's going to happen is Russia has, has overstepped. I think Putin, a lot of the times these dictators become so isolated over time because everyone's afraid of them. So they don't get good advice. They don't get good information and they start to make really bad decisions. And I think this was one for Vladimir Putin. I think it has and will very much weaken him. We could talk about that, but he's overextended himself and, and the Russian army in Ukraine, and they're going to pay a, a heavy, heavy price. They don't have the troops to occupy Ukraine, especially not with a very motivated and hopefully well-supplied guerrilla force, which is what I think the Ukrainians will become. It'll become less army on army and and more. It already is becoming this and more Ukrainian guerrilla force on, on Russian army. But I think the Ukrainians will be able to fight that fight very effectively. There will still be tremendous losses on the Ukrainian side, but there so will there be on the Russian army side. And over time, my money's on the Ukrainians. Oh, what a hard, horrible thing to witness, though. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. What's crazier than QAnon? More outlandish than Pizzagate? And scarier than a Mexican getaway with Ted Cruz? The answer is what the American right wing has planned next. Be one of the first to listen to Fever Dreams, the new podcast from the Daily Beast tracking the conspiracy slingers, orange acolytes, and straight-up grifters pushing to retake power. Every Wednesday, hosts Swin Subasang and Will Summer check in on the movement of the radical right. Head to thedailybeast.com slash podcasts or your favorite podcast player to catch the first episode and get subscribed. That's Fever Dreams, which you can subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. Jesse Cannon. Molly Jock Fast, I am back because poor Andy Levy can't join us today. But you know what? I'm you back here. You sound really with- jacked up, man. <laughs> But yes, continue. I am back with the fury of someone who's been sitting here listening to you two express your fury, and now I'm ready to express mine. Jesus, just express it slightly softer. (laughs) Who is your fuck that guy, Loudo? (laughs) My fuck that guy is a nice little guy from Santa Monica. I'm, of course, talking about a man who is no friend of mine. Ben Shapiro, who's very angry that all his life, he was never very accepted. And he showed it yet again by, for some reason, comparing Joe Biden to Kurt Cobain as if that's a bad thing. You know, he basically said that uh, Joe Biden's State of the Union address was like Kurt Cobain putting the gun to his mouth for America, which uh, I think could be the dictionary definition of hyperbole. But I want to say, like, this is his cultural blindness. You know, this guy is very weird because of how scorned he was as a child. And he doesn't get that Kurt Cobain is a beloved figure, a defender of transgender and gay people at a time when almost no one was, a kind, empathetic person who made millions of people feel better, and most of all, was one of the biggest game changers of all time. And I hope that Joe Biden is seen and lives up to that. And for that, I say, I kind of agreed, Ben Shapiro. Aspirationally, I hope Joe Biden is Kurt Cobain. So do you want to know who my fuck that guy? I, I got a feeling I, I got a sneaking suspicion who they might be, so, so, so give it to me. 
You know, what's interesting to me is during Biden's State of the Union address, which I, again, I wrote about this, but I actually thought it was really pretty Mm -hmm. good for him. And he did a really a pretty good job. And he talked about a lot of things. And there's a really interesting and important framing here about Democrats fighting for democracy in a world that is teetering on the brink of autocracy. But of course, you can't have an event in Washington, D.C. without Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert showing up and they had shown up in order to get attention. It's like the entire GOP has become a stunt driven organization. (laughs) So you had the two of them with their backs to Biden as a way of showing their displeasure. And then as Biden's talking about burn pits and how his own son died at 46 of brain cancer, they start heckling him. And it's like, The idea was that they would get attention and that they would get people, you know, would rally around them. But what happened, which I think is is sort of basically how they are, is that instead they were sort of just really embarrassing. Mm -hmm. And it was like yet another really embarrassing moment in what has been a string of really embarrassing moments. And you know it's embarrassing because... They didn't even try to fundraise off of it. So, <laughs> wow, I didn't and realize that, that. And I mean, but 80% of this organization is them fundraising. So yeah. uh, fuck that guy. Uh, you, you know what I kept thinking about with it was that, you know, when we saw Marjorie go speak at the white supremacist rally last week, that was because Kevin McCarthy didn't punish Congressman Dentist for doing the same thing the year before. And because Joe Wilson got no punishment for yelling, you lie at Obama. Now we have these two hooting and hollering like when Kid Rock comes on at the Buffalo Wild Wings. I mean, I would say that certainly there has been a lack of accountability on the GOP side, and they don't have any. But, you know, if they start punishing people, that's the base, right? They've worked so hard to try to keep these people on board. So for that, I would like to say a hearty fuck you to Lauren Boebert and... Alpha Mega Karen. Marjorie Taylor Greene, yes, MTG. (laughs) Okay. On that note, we'll wrap this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking to smart folks from the Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.